All right. Well, good morning, kids. You are dismissed up to Grace Place. I will see you guys. We'll see you later. We love you. We're praying for you. We hope that you have a wonderful time up there. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Chris Fellowship Free Church. If you are a guest with us this morning, whether in person or online, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here, and thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, which you should, if you're in person, you almost had to sit on one to get in your seat. Uh, open your Bibles. You can go to the book of Galatians. If you are using a, uh, one of the Bibles from the church, you're looking for page 972. Um, 972. So we started last week a series in Galatians, and uh, we're going to continue that this morning. As you guys are turning, I'd like to uh, thank a few people. I'd like to thank our audiovisual team who have been making it so that we can read the lyrics on the screen, and you can hear us, and uh, the live stream can happen, and they come early so that they can practice with the band, and they stay after to make sure everything's clean and put away and, and done correctly and load up the sermons and do all of these things uh, to make it so that uh, we can make this church as accessible as possible in 2021. So thank you, everybody on our AV team. Uh, thank you guys, especially uh, John and Peter, who have been holding it down for a long, long time. If you would like to join in on that team, um, we will train you. We have all kinds of uh, checklists and things where we will walk you through it. Even if you're like, I can barely turn on a computer, that's okay. We can train you. We can teach you. All you got to do is be willing to serve, and we will gladly put you to work. So if you are interested in that, you can fill out a Connect card uh, on your seat, um, and you can circle AV and drop that in the offering plate later on, and we will get you plugged in. If you uh, would rather do that online, you can use our Connect card online. If you go to churchinroscovillage.org slash connect, and you can do that uh, if you're at home on the live stream as well. Um, a couple of other announcements. We do have our community groups. We are starting uh, planning for those, and uh, we just ordered the books. So once the books get here, we'll be able to have a firmer date on when groups can start. But what we also need for those groups to start is leaders and hosts. We need people who are willing to facilitate discussion and um, keep things moving. And we also need, uh, if you're willing to, maybe even open up your home. If you say, I don't necessarily want to lead a group, but I'd love to be able to welcome people into my home and make sure it gives me a reason to clean it once a week, that would be great too. So if you're interested in leading or in hosting a group, please let us know. You can use Connect Cards. You can email us. Uh, just get a hold of us. This week would be really great so we have an idea of who's going to be where and we can start planning for that. Um, we also are going to have a uh, cleaning the church day. We're going to have a uh, a spring cleaning in the fall day where we're going to get together and we're going to do some cleaning and sprucing up of the place. Um, the only other announcement I have is that on Friday, an email went out um, giving you guys some information regarding, uh, regarding some uh, situation that occurred that we found out about last week. Um, and so if you didn't get that email, check your email. It's probably in your spam. If you don't get email, uh, we will be sending out a letter this week. And if you don't have, if we don't have your email or mailing address, I can't get that thing to you. So please make sure you update your contact info uh, and put it in the offering plate so I can get that info to you. And if you have questions, you can talk to me about that. Okay, uh, this morning, Galatians is where we are going to be. Um, I have never really lived on my own. Uh, in college, I was in the dorms, and then right after college, I moved back to my parents' house, and I lived in my parents' basement until I got married. So there are certain things I never really had to learn how to do for myself until I got married, which means that the first few years of our marriage, Sarah had to be very patient with me as I caught up to the rest of the world in learning how to do some basic skills that I probably should have learned way before that, including cooking. Um, 
I was not a great cook when we first got married. I mean, I could do like, the, I had some standards in my pocket, right? Like I could turn on a grill and, and char something. Uh, I could do mac and cheese. And I was really good at opening a can of soup and pouring it into a bowl. Um, and that was about the extent of my skills when we first got married. Uh, but over time, and out of, out of partially a necessity and partially just a desire to not starve if Sarah ever went away for a weekend, I had learned and taught myself how to cook a little bit better, or at least work my way around the kitchen a little bit better. And even during certain seasons of our marriage, I, was, I have been the primary chef of the household. Um, and I promise I've come a long way since hot dogs and mac and cheese, though those are still in our rotation for sure. Um, but when you're cooking a dish, when you're cooking a meal, you don't use every ingredient in the pantry because that would change what you're cooking. Or you could even do something worse than just change what you're cooking. If you take a recipe and you start changing the ingredients, you're no longer making what you originally started out making. You start doing something else, you're making something different. And if you aren't careful to follow that recipe, you could not only make something completely different, but you could ruin the meal for yourself and for others. So to catch us up, Galatians is written to a group of churches um, in which Paul, is, Paul helped plant and grow these churches. And since leaving to continue on in his missionary journeys, Paul has gotten word that many within the churches are forsaking the gospel that they once believed. Some have come in, some leaders have come in and begun to convince the people that the gospel and salvation is more than just faith in Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, but that you need to add to what he did. Specifically, you need to add circumcision to what Jesus did if you truly wanted to enter into the family of God. This letter is written to combat the false teaching and not only show the weakness of living under the law, versus grace, but to also solidify and defend the actual gospel message where true salvation is found. The message of good news, good news of great joy, what the angels told the shepherds on when Mary was giving birth to Jesus. The message of good news that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for our sins and rose again, and in doing so displayed his absolute power and authority over all of creation so that there is now forgiveness and new life for those who would believe both here, now, and in eternity. And it is that message and its vital ingredients that should not be distorted. And once you begin changing the message, you have ruined a perfectly good meal. Because to add to the gospel is to change the gospel and to lose the gospel. And so this morning, Paul, in his warning to the church in Galatians, gives, talks about the seriousness of adding to the gospel, the consequences that may be ahead if you add to the gospel, and really breaks it down into what is our motivation when it comes to us and the gospel. So that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to pray, and we will get to work. So please bow your heads uh, and join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for another opportunity to celebrate, to worship, to see one another, to check in with one another, to be together. The fact that you are the God of community is a great blessing to us because it's who you are and so it's, made, it's who you've made us to be, people who seek after and flourish in community. And you've built these little communities all over the world for generation after generation, and you have given us this one, this one here at the 
corner of Damon and Newport. This one here where we have been in this neighborhood for over 90 years. You've built this community. You have sustained this community. You have continued to add to this community. You've continued to send out from this community and take this community and even spread it around the world in different ways. It's a great blessing and honor to get to be part of your church, to get to be part of what you are doing in this city, in this neighborhood, in this world. And at the center of all of that, at the heart of all of that, is the gospel. The good news of your love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. The good news that it is not about how good we can be, but how great you are. Lord, as we study your word, as we open up this text, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, minds to understand, and hands and feet to live in response to what it is you are calling us to this morning. As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name, amen. So we're going to be in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Hopefully for many of us, that's a, you've heard that a couple of times. And uh, who, who took a stab? Even if you did, did one day, who took a stab at reading through Galatians this week? We as a church, if you're uh, with us, if you weren't with us last week or you, you missed our social media push, um, as we study the book of Galatians, there are six chapters to this book, and so what we are committing to as a church is that uh, every day we're going to do one chapter. And so Mondays are chapter one days, Tuesday, chapter two, Wednesday, chapter three, Thursday, chapter four, Friday, chapter five, Saturday, chapter six. Uh, and we're going to do that over and over again. So we just got through the first week of it. Hopefully uh, you learned, hopefully it was encouraging and uh, built you up. I'm excited to hear as God, as we continue to dive deep into this scripture, as we continue to uh, get really familiar with Paul's letter to the Galatians, I'm excited to hear what God has for us in that. So uh, we're going to do it once again. So starting tomorrow, Galatians 1 uh, is for tomorrow. Um, and so Paul starts with talking about the seriousness of adding to the gospel. We touched on this briefly last week, but uh, this letter is a little bit different than Paul's other letters because if you look at Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, you'll see a few examples of Paul where he introduces himself to, as the writer of the letter and then he usually serve, uh, switches into thanksgiving and praise for the church or the leader or whoever it is he's writing to. It's a pretty standard way of starting out Paul's letters almost universally except for Galatians. Paul has no thanksgiving or praises for these churches. He has a message for them and wants to jump right into it. As we said last week, it's because the stakes are too high. The topic is too important. Paul doesn't want to waste any time. And so instead of praise, instead of uh, talking about how excited and proud he is for them, 
He talks about how he marvels, he is astonished and amazed that they are deserting so quickly to a different gospel. Now look, there's a difference between deserting and having deserted. Paul says they are in the act of doing it, is the language he uses. One foot out the door maybe, but there is still hope, there is still time to realize what they have done, what they're in the process of doing, and turn away from it and turn, back, turn away from the lies and back to the gospel. See, even in his warning, and this is a theme throughout the Bible, over and over, God would send messages in the Old Testament. The prophets would bring these messages of condemnation, of, of this is what's coming to you, Israel, if you don't turn away. But there's always that if, there's always that but, because God is always gracious and merciful. And so constantly, even when they were in the midst of sin and idolatry, it was, please turn back. If you don't, it's going to end poorly. Paul, once again, here if you don't turn away, you are so quickly, you have deserted. You are, are deserting, but it's not over yet. It's not too late. You can still turn back to God. There is always more time. It seems that Paul isn't amazed that they are turning. While that would be sad and maybe alarm him, it, it wouldn't amaze him. It amazes him that they are turning so quickly. And notice that Paul says they aren't turning from a thing they aren't turning from an idea or a concept or a vague structure of rules and laws. No, they are turning away from a person. They have turned away from a relationship. How quickly you are deserting him. To turn away from the true gospel is to turn away from a relationship with God and to turn away from the person of Jesus Christ. To turn away from the true gospel is to turn away from a relationship with God and to turn from the person of Jesus Christ. The phrase deconstructing my faith is a popular one these days, especially on social media. Whether it be an outspoken celebrity Christian or just people within some of my circles of relationship, there is this desire to try and take apart uh, their belief system Usually with, whether or not it's genuine, the expressed goal of, I want to understand what I believe. Now look, that concept, understanding what you believe, that's good. That's healthy. You should know what you believe and why you believe it. Peter encourages that in 1 Peter 3. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. My in-laws gave 20-plus years of their life to high school ministry with this idea and forefront, with this verse at the forefront, this desire so that high school kids who came through their ministry would know what they believed, understand what the gospel is, understand that God knows them and made them and loves them, and that why they believe it, that they would have a biblical literacy about them so that when they left for college, they would be grounded in the faith. It is good to know not only what you believe, but why you believe it. What I see happen a lot, fairly often, is someone in response to the church not holding a view or belief that that individual doesn't like, or just a response to general imperfection found within the church. They retreat from community to deconstruct their faith, which all too often leads to them just walking away from Christianity. And as I've read the statements from some of these celebrity Christians and even had conversations with people, as I said, in my own inner circles, going through this process over and over, what sticks out to me is a lack of viewing their faith as a relationship with Jesus. 
Among the many reasons I believe that this is happening now is because over time, people have allowed themselves consciously and subconsciously to change the recipe of the gospel or to allow a altered recipe of the gospel into their heads and hearts, and they believe it as such. Paul says in verse 7, I'm so quickly, I'm, I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you. And then verse 7, not that there is another gospel. You're turning to a different gospel, not that there actually is another one. See, he catches himself. There's actually not another gospel, but what they have been called to are lies and distortions. What they are called to was a message that the false teachers were labeling a gospel message, but it didn't have the right ingredients of the gospel. Because if the gospel is a good recipe, right, if you think about any good recipe, whatever your family go-to, your favorite go-to for meals and parties is, we're turning to fall, so I've, I got chili on the brain, right? So if I'm making a pot of chili, there are certain things you actually need, right? You need protein, you need beans, you need chili powder, you need hot sauce, tomatoes, etc. But instead of some of those staples to a pot of chili, if I just open up the pantry and just start chucking stuff in, if I'm throwing in, you know, peanut butter, some pears, I got some lettuce about to go bad, some potatoes, cover it with some mustard, turn the crock pot on, chili. That ain't chili. Just because I call it chili doesn't make it chili. There are certain specific ingredients you need to make chili. Number one, you need meat. I know the vegetarians in here are going to be like, no, you can make chili. No, you can't. You made a vegetarian dish, okay? I'll argue with you. That's fine. PastorTimCF at gmail.com. We can talk about it. Too often, we mess with the recipe. We distort the gospel. We minimize, manipulate, and marginalize different aspects of the good news. And this morning, I want to take just a few minutes to talk about some of those ways that we distort the gospel in an effort to keep us aware of not only what we hear and read, but what we ourselves are saying. Because we manipulate the gospel and we turn it into the health, wealth, happy gospel. People like Joel Olstein want to tell you that the key to your best life yet is to have positive thoughts, do your best, and God will reward you with money and power and prestige. If you do good enough, God's going to take care of you. You make God happy, your bills will get paid, things will go smoothly. That's what God wants for you. That's a really sweet message. The only problem with that is the entirety of the Bible. We as Christians, our desire is to be more and more like Christ. CF's mission statement that we are becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ. That's what we're about here. Well, if we look at the life of Jesus, he was not wealthy. He was, by all accounts, homeless. Spent those three ministry years bouncing from house to house. He wasn't always happy. He weeps at Lazarus' tomb. He weeps as he rides into Jerusalem. He gets angry and flips tables when he saw what had happened to his father's house. And as far as health goes, it's hard to get a clean bell of health from a doctor when you are hanging, tortured, and murdered on a, on a cross. But that's who we are called to be like. That's who we are called and wanting to be more and more like. Look, God does want to bless you. And he does want you to live your best life yet. He might even bless you now in this life with money and power and health. But if he doesn't, if you are poor and sick and depressed, that does not mean that God doesn't love you, and that does not mean you are a bad Christian. 
He does want to bless you. Not because of how good you are, not because of what you can do. It's because he is good and loving. And the blessings that God has for us are so much greater than money in a bank account or the regards of man or any other thing that this world wants to tell us is the ultimate goal we should be striving for. The reality of living this life, Christian or not, the reality of being a human is that we will experience hardships. It's going to happen. We will experience pain, suffering, even loss. But you see, that's where the gospel kicks in. Because for the Christian, for those who have put their faith in the gospel, we know that this life is not the end of the story. We know that after this comes eternity. And for the one who has put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that alone for their salvation, that eternity is with God in his glorious presence, enjoying him, wanting and needing for nothing. And for the first time ever, we will be truly, fully, completely satisfied and at peace. When we manipulate the gospel, we lose the gospel. But that's not the only way we distort the gospel message because we also marginalize the gospel. We marginalize the gospel and we turn it into the forgetful gospel. That's when we forget how we gained our grace and mercy and status as the children of God in the first place. It wasn't about us, it was about God and his goodness and his righteousness and his compassion toward us. But what happens is we come to that day, we come to that moment when we realize we are a sinner in need of a Savior and we put our faith in Jesus. We accept the grace and accept the free gift of Christ and we love it and we revel in it and we celebrate it. And then we get into Bible study and ministry and we get so caught up in doing Christianity and we get so drawn to, okay, how do I do this? We get so drawn to the checklist of this is what a Christian is supposed to look like. Do these things, say these words, and we put on this show for everybody so much so that we convince ourselves of how impressive we are, and we stop dwelling on the free grace that has been given to us, let alone sharing that with others. As Christ writes in the opening letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 2.4, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have gone away from what brought you to the dance in the first place. You have lost sight of the truth. Instead of a daily reflection, embracing and rejoicing in the good news that God would come to earth to die for us so that we could have abundant and eternal life, we marginalize the good news in, an, in a way to emphasize our good works and our performance. But when we marginalize the gospel, we lose the gospel. The third way we distort the gospel is that we minimize it. We minimize the gospel and we turn it into the small cross gospel. We minimize the importance of the cross, of sin, of hell, especially when we share the gospel with others, when we actually do walk, get enough, get enough uh, courage to actually talk about our faith with others. We talk to people and we want to skim past the cross. We share the gospel something like this. We, yeah, we have sin, you know, we do bad things, we need a savior. So, you know, God sent his son and he died on a cross and he came back from the dead. But like, God is love, y'all. God is so good. And we try to emphasize that and, and kind of minimize some of the dark, ugly stuff. We do that in our own lives. Look at most churches. Look at compare Good Friday attendance to Easter Sunday attendance. Because 
we don't like the ugly. We don't like the messy. No matter how good Good Friday is and the fact that Jesus' death gives us new life, we don't like to sit in that. It's uncomfortable. It's messy. It's dirty. It's hard. But that Easter Sunday, ooh, we will put on our pastels and we will be at church early and we will sing loud and proud because that's, that's new life. Amen and amen. You can't get to Sunday until you go through Friday. But we minimize the gospel. We don't want to sound crazy to other people. We don't want to alienate ourselves from somebody else. We don't want them to look at us or treat us differently. Or we take it a step further and we just minimize the cross so much that it's barely there. It's this tiny little pocket-sized thing. Instead of we just focus on the love of God. Love wins. Love is love is love. Yes, God is love. Yes, God does win. And if God wins, that means somebody's got to lose. And those who do not receive the gift of grace, those who would abandon or ignore or just flat out refuse what Jesus did on the cross in dying for our sins and raising from the dead, they will lose and lose for eternity as they spend it in hell separated from God. That's the reality. So if you are sharing the gospel with someone and you are minimizing the work of Jesus at the cross, if you are minimizing the, the reality of their sin, you aren't being loving and kind to that person that you are talking to. You are confusing and misdirecting and distorting the good news that can save them. When we minimize the gospel, we lose the gospel. Folks, when we manipulate, when we minimize, when we marginalize, when we distort the gospel for whatever reason and motivation we might have, we lose it. You mess with the recipe, it's not the same dish. Paul's message here is that if it doesn't have these elements, the correct ingredients, then we're not proclaiming the gospel. Now you can see why Paul catches himself in verse 7. It's not that there's another gospel you can get turned to. We manipulate and minimize and marginalize. We lose the gospel because we've changed the narrative. We've changed the story completely. And to change the story is to make it something it's not. It's no longer the gospel. It's no longer good news. It's something else entirely. It's just news. It's just information. See, we need to see the seriousness of what Paul is addressing here, the seriousness of what it is that we believe because to distort the gospel message has effects on eternity for ourselves and for others. It is a serious matter. And we, when we decide and, and make that distinction of what is and is not the gospel, and there are consequences when we distort, when we man, manipulate, manipulate, when we minimize and marginalize the good news, there are consequences to that, and we see that in verse 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I try and remind you of this every time we get to one of these moments. In the Bible, if something is repeated, it is very important. If it's repeated in close proximity to itself, it is really, 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 really important. Paul basically says the same thing almost back-to-back, -back, basically. And so Paul here is addressing these churches in Galatia. And remember the authority that he comes with that we saw in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, a sent one from God himself, with that same authority, he says, whether it be an angel, whether it be somebody else, even if it's Paul, if you hear a message of salvation, of good news, coming in any way other than that, what the gospel truly is, let that person be accursed. Let that person be banned, be condemned. Don't give them the time of day. Don't give them your energy, your time, your thoughts, and certainly not your following. And if it's good enough for Paul to say it, it's good enough for me to say it. Church, if you ever hear me come, if you ever hear anything come from me that would in any way imply that salvation can be found in any way other than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if I ever preach to you a message that would imply that the finished work of Jesus on the cross wasn't enough on its own, please, for the sake of your brothers and sisters, go to the elders. I shouldn't be here if I'm doing that. If you hear a message ever from this pulpit, whether it be me, another elder, or anybody else who would ever proclaim to you a message of salvation found anywhere other than Jesus Christ, I would hope you would stand and say something and demand that truth be proclaimed in this church. This right here is grounds for at the very least removing me as your pastor if I were ever to do this. And I hope you would take that seriously. I'm telling you right now, if I were to do that, you should remove me. We have consequences to our actions, including but not limited to things we experience here, but also things that we will experience beyond on that day when we stand before our judge. Let me tell you, as somebody who walks into this pulpit almost weekly, that's a sobering reality. But this warning from Paul, let him be accursed, it's not just for me. It's not just for preachers. It's for anyone who would share the word of God, who would share the gospel message. If anyone who would share that message, this should challenge you, brothers and sisters. It should challenge you on two fronts, really, on the things that you say and the things that you hear. See, it comes back to what we said before. You've got to know what you believe and be faithful to that. Do not use this warning from Paul as an excuse not to share the gospel. Don't hear these words and say, okay, well, I'm just too scared of being accursed, so I'm just never going to share the gospel. Because if you are honest and humble and faithful to the opportunities to share that God puts in your life, he will walk with you in those moments. He will speak through you in those moments. Do you really think that you are going to get in the way of God's plan? Do you really think you have the power and ability to mess up God's plan? Satan hasn't been able to do it. He's been trying since God said, let there be light. He still can't do it. He still can't stop because at the end, God wins. You can't stop God's plan. This warning is not about you better memorize the gospel perfectly. And if you don't deliver it perfectly, you and everybody else is going to be in trouble. No, this is about what's in your heart. What's your desire? What are you trying to do? And are you being faithful to God and what you know to be the truth? But this warning should also challenge our hearing. Be careful who it is that you listen to. Be careful who it is that you feed yourself with. Just because someone calls themselves a Christian doesn't make it so. Just because a gathering of people call themselves a church doesn't make it so. So then how do we know? How do we discern? If it's this important, if it's this vital, how do we know and discern who and what to listen to? 
1 John 4 gives us some instruction. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In Acts 17, it speaks of a group of people who received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. This is, once again, another vital endorsement that your time within the pages of the Bible, with your Bible open, cannot be limited to Sunday mornings. That cannot be the only time you are in the Word. Or else, how will you know? How will you truly know if someone is trying to manipulate, minimize, or marginalize, or just plain lie, cheat, steal your very soul away from you? There is a seriousness to knowing the gospel, to understanding the gospel. And there are real, actual consequences to leading others astray or allowing yourself to be led astray. So it really boils down to what is our motivation in all of this? What drives us? What gets us going in the morning? Paul says in verse 10, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In regards to the gospel, Paul asked two rhetorical questions. Am I seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? Paul says, you can't do both. You can't please man and please God. Why? Because God is holy and good and righteous and love and just and pure and perfect, and man is inherently wicked, inherently evil, inherently sinful. That's who we are by default. And so trying to please man, trying to please the world, is by nature going counter to who God is. And on the flip side, if you are trying to please God, if you are trying to be in line with what the will and pleasures of God are, you will inevitably find yourself at odds with this broken, fallen world. And here's where Paul says, I don't have a choice in the matter. I'm a servant of Christ. This is not my life anymore. I was bought. I was delivered, as we saw last week in verse 4. I was redeemed. Paul will say in chapter 3 of this letter, Christ bought us with his blood and made us free from the law. Our lives were purchased by the blood of Jesus. He'll say, again, he'll say in chapter 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This life is not yours, Christian. And so that desire that need to try and win the affections of man. It is unnecessary, unneeded, and it is a waste of your time. It is not the end goal of your life. But some want to see this new reality of our lives, of being bought by Christ, of Christ being in charge as too restricting. I don't like that. I don't like that I have to actually come to terms with what Scripture actually says, that to be a Christian, you know, when Jesus says things like, love your enemies, pray for your enemies, well, that's hard. I don't like what Scripture has to say about roles within the family, about roles within society, about how we're supposed to deal with government, about how we're supposed to deal with sex. I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. It doesn't go along with my experience. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to deconstruct things until I can remove those from my faith and keep control and keep my power and I can be in charge. And if I can't remove them, then I'm just going to remove myself from the community. And in doing that, you start doing exactly what Paul was so amazed by. You miss the relationship. 
You miss the love and compassion and empathy. You, you miss the mercy. You miss the things that God has for you. You miss the things about who God is that would send his son to die in the first place. You miss that the God of all existence formed you. He knows you. He knows you so much he would send his son to die for you. You miss the reality that God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You miss out on the fact that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You miss out on the fact that God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. You miss out on the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to be a comfort to others. You miss out on the Lord who is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. You miss out on the God who is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in days of trouble. Paul lives to please God because he tasted the greatest meal possible. He tasted the deliciousness of the gospel. And so in response, yeah, he wants more of it. He tried what the world had to offer and it was hot garbage. Brothers and sisters, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you have done that, if you have experienced that and you know the goodness of God, I beg of you, do not lose sight of the gospel. Do not walk away from the good news. The consequences are too high. The stakes are too large. We're talking about eternity here. We're talking about life now and forever. What you decide about the person and work of Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make. And I pray that you would know the truth of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, came to earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross and rose again. And for anyone who would put their faith in that and that alone, they would find new life here, now, and in eternity. The gospel is the good news that God loves you and he is for you. Today, in this moment, right now, right here, whether you have been a Christian but walked away and gotten distracted by false messages, or today for the first time, you're realizing just how hungry you are to taste that goodness of God. It is not too late. There's still time. There's still time to say, God, right now, in this moment, Lord, I need you. I know I have fallen short, and I know I need you to be my Lord and Savior. God, I want you. And folks, he hears that prayer. He loves that prayer. He invites and welcomes that prayer. The table is set. The meal has been laid out, and I pray that you would come and eat and be satisfied. Let's pray. As we pray, I want you guys, as you bow your heads, I want you to take your hands and just put your hands out, palms up to God. It's a little different posture for us, but it's important sometimes to change our posture when we're interacting with God. God, we come to you this morning with our hands empty, with our hands open to you. We come with our hands, our hands empty knowing that there is nothing for us to add to the gospel. Knowing nothing for us to bring but ourselves. We can't earn it, we can't win it. We got nothing to bring. We need you. And so, God, we come with these empty hands, not only showing that we got nothing to bring, but we come asking that you would fill us. Fill us with you. Fill us with your presence, your grace, your mercy, your wisdom, 
more of you. Fill us with more of a hunger and drive to know you better. And as we do, as we pursue you and pursue a relationship with you and get to know you more and more, let us never be satisfied with how well we know you. Let us never stop pursuing you. You are the only one who can fill us with anything worth being filled with. So Lord, fill us up. Fill us so that we can pour out. Fill us so that we can pour out and point others to you so that we can be the lights of the world you have made us to be. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you would send your son to die for us. We thank you and praise you. Amen.